0: To those of you finding yourselves on this podcast for the first time, my name is Maitreya Prithviraj Khorpade Welcome to What on Earth? An attempt to understand what humans are doing to our ecology, how and why we are able to act in ways completely against nature, as well as from where and whom we can find solutions to the buffet of catastrophes that we are all standing in line for. Let's start today's episode. Thank you for joining me in part two of revisiting the value of the priceless with Dr. Gurudas Nulkar. In part one, we explored the nature of the modern economic system in an attempt to figure out why things are the way they are in today's economic world. Dr. Nulkar laid out a pretty definitive idea of what goes on in really any capitalist nation of the 21st century, but especially in India. We also attempted to address the issues of one of the most marginalized groups in the country, the agrarian population, who have systematically been made an unwilling participant to the modern economic system. In part two, Dr. Nulkar and I attempt to examine what potential alternatives to present-day capitalism look like. But first, why are farmers having such a bad time in today's economy?
1: Because of the Green Revolution, because of the three pillars of revolutions. Green Revolution, you know farm inputs, hybrid varieties and farm mechanization. We made it sure that farmers need money to grow their own plants They have to have money. Without money, they can't because they have to buy the seeds, they have to buy the fertilizers, they have to buy the farm mechanization. Everything has to be buy, buy, buy. Before the Green Revolution, farmers did not invest too much money in their farms. They could. They, they used to keep their own seeds, they used to have labour which was working there, they used to have their own organic manure system which uh, and decomposition mechanisms which used to feed the farm. So they didn't need money to be invested three months ahead of what, when they were able to make money. Now, because we brought, ushered in the era of Green Revolution, we made sure that every farmer must have taken a loan. Without loan, that poor fellow cannot operate. Now after you have taken the loan, and after three months, because of the vagaries of the monsoon, because of the vagaries of the market, because of uh, locust attacks, because of diseases, now suppose 20% of your crop is going to fail, I'm I'm saying a very optimistic way 20% of your crop is going to fail, then there is no chance that you can recover even the loan amount and the interest amount. Which means that the farmers are going to be sucked into a downward spiral which is credit and which is leading to suicide. So, this the credit economy, the agrarian sector is something which must be looked at very seriously by agro economists and economists of the country. Unfortunately, the agrarian credit economy is looked at by economists only from loan, loan waivers. Not one government, not two governments, all the governments after independence have only been treating the symptoms of a broken um, agrarian economy. And that is, to my um, opinion, opinion, a very serious thing which has to be looked at by the government.
0: Alright, so it's clear the present system has a few problems. It's obvious that the system seems rigged against the majority, the ones at the bottom of the pyramid scheme. But what about the few of us for whom the system does work? Those of us who can afford to buy expensive cars, and, and far more impressively, also afford to buy the fuel that runs those cars. The elite, the one percenters surely they are having a great time. Yeah, th- that's what I picture when I think of happy people. Uh, uh, billionaires, you know, CEOs. <laughs> All right, so not to belabor the point, but the current system, yeah, it's, it's not working. What would an alternative economy look like?
1: Yeah, so uh, what would be an alternative economy? And that's something which I've been uh, trying to look for an answer for the last so many years. And um, I I have bumped into a couple of things which need to be changed if we want to look at an alternative economy which is fair, which is just, which is equitable and which is also not degrading to the environment also.
0: Fair, just, equitable and not degrading to the environment? Sounds like a utopian economy.
1: That's a utopian economy. But it is possible and it needs a dramatic change in the way we are thinking about Um, the current economic engine and how it is. So, first and foremost, I think what needs to change uh, before the economy needs to change is the way the democracy is operating at the moment. You know, we do not have a democracy. I can vote for any party, but that's only on one day in five years. After I vote, I have no control on what the person I voted for is going to do in the next five years. I have no control about what kind of decisions he is going to take for the environment or for the poor or for the agrarian economy. There is just no way. It is not at all a participative democracy. It's just a democracy in the technical meaning uh, rule of the people by the people for the people. But it really does nothing to the 1.3 billion people of the country. So there are just a handful of people who are running the country right now and they are highly influenced by the people who are the biggest beneficiaries of the economic engine. That's what I said at the start. So those people are the ones who are influencing policies, influencing the way the mining is going to go, influencing the way uh, whatever needs to, uh, the infrastructure needs to be looked at, and lopsided development becomes a reality. I always give the example of airports versus uh, state transport bus stands. You know, ST stands as we call them. Who, who travels more uh, uh, Indians travel more by in airplanes or by ST. Obviously, see ST, right? But look at the amount of money we have spent in the last one decade for improving our airports. Is that required? Of course, you can argue that yes, better airports and more security and safer airports are required. But when you say that and you're completely ignoring any ST stand in the country, it's not hygienic, there is no sanitation, there is filth all around and the most numerous uh, Indians are using that system to travel. Not a single ST stand has got even one rupee for improvement or for any work. That is because the infrastructure uh, activity, building activity in an ST stand is not profitable. So the corporations are going to influence the government to spend more money on airports, which is very, very profitable. And therefore, we start getting lopsided development. So, first and foremost, is the way the democratic system is organized. Why should decisions about Garchiroli be taken in Mantralaya, in Churchgate in Mumbai? Why should something about Odisha's mines be decided in Lutent Delhi? It just does not make any sense. We have given, to, given the power to people who have the money. Where have we said, let's make this Adiwati chief in um, uh, the mayor? Where have we said that we need to empower these indigenous tribes so that they will use their own rule of government? We have not said that. We are not a democracy today at all. We are something which looks like a democracy. It's like eating conflicts out of a packet. It's not food. It looks like food. <laughs> so, so we are misled by, we are misled by uh, these things in the market today. That is one. Second is our over-dependence on monetary economics. We have to earn money. Now, that has become an obsession for so many long years. Why should everybody be in the monetary economy? If I want to live on a farm, grow my own food and you know, use my own fuel, so be it. You don't want me to be mainstreamed into the monetary economy. Now, that is what we have done to the indigenous people, the tribals. We have displaced them from because of dams and because of mines. And we've said, you come to cities, we'll give you work. They don't need work. They don't want to earn money, but we force them to earn money. Now, so those people who are living happily without earning money have now mainstreamed into the cities, and they are living as menial laborers working in somebody's house or washing somebody's car or doing some things which are not giving happiness to them they are giving money not giving happiness so the structure of the economy and the structure of democracy are the two things which must be changed parallelly without which i do not have any hope of uh, improving the way the things are today
0: no hope for improving things that sounds less than ideal But come on, we live in the world's biggest democracy, we've been told. Aren't there any instances when a group of individuals has come together to create an economic system that actually works? Aren't there any success stories?
1: Yeah, so there are so many examples all across the country which have successfully, they have their own governance. They are deciding their own means of prosperity. They are deciding what is well-being for them. Now, for somebody sitting in South Bombay, well-being has a typical, uh, uh, has a particular definition. Now, somebody who is living in Gadi need not have the same definition of well-being. It's so damn simple. But the economist looks at well-being from his personal bias, his experiential bias his idea of well-being. So first and foremost, if if communities come together and decide what is their own definition of wealth, that's exactly what I did in Dara Chinsora. I sat with the villagers and said, you define your, uh, you make your own definition of wealth. Don't say wealth is amounts in the bank. That's just one component of wealth. Wealth could be time with friends, you know, leisure sitting with uh, with a cup of coffee with friends, being with family, you know, enjoying life, visiting the, the riverside. All these things need to be added to your component of wealth. Now, once you have your own definition of wealth, then it is easier to move towards achieving that wealth. Then you don't blindly follow what people in Mumbai and Pune are doing. Here we are working from 7 a.m. in the morning to 8 p.m. at night and then coming and, you know, at the end of the month, we're getting some fat salary in the bank. But that is not wealth. That is one component which will lead you to some prosperity. But that itself is not prosperity. So delinking money and prosperity is the first thing which societies need to understand. And if somebody is working with them, that's what should be done first. And it's very easy for the indigenous people and the smaller communities. To understand this concept. It's very tough for me when I'm saying this concept in an urban gathering. People just come out at me and say, Are you crazy? You're not really You're talking to your hat, you're utopian, they'll say anything. But a villager who has been in his village, for him, it's very easy to understand. And that's exactly what probably Lekha did. That is exactly what um, Hibre uh, 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 Bazaar did. And there are so many examples all across. You know, Vikal Sangam, Ashish is. Um, organization of Vikas Sangam is doing a fantastic job of documenting all such small societies all across the, in, uh, the country and finding out what is it that they did to be so happy for themselves. How are they able to govern their own communities? How are they able to share natural resources equitably? How are they able to reduce migration to cities? One of the key metrics of a happy village is that there is zero migration to work, uh, for, uh, to cities for work. Now, that is exactly what we are trying to In Dara Chintura, we have managed, after two years, we managed to stop the migration of 22 families, which is a big achievement for us. So, uh, there are examples which people can look at. Unfortunately, a lot of NGOs are coming with a bomb in their hands and not analyzing what is the root cause. You know, root cause analysis is so very important when you're moving towards sustainability. That is the only way that you can find out what needs to be worked upon. If you don't do a root cause analysis, then all you're going to do is you're going to be a doctor who is going to give you medicine for cure, not for prevention.
0: those of you that have managed to reach this far in the podcast thank you so so much you obviously love me very much or you genuinely enjoyed the show either way i owe you one and i want to do something for you i want to give you the best podcast experience possible so tell me how i can do that tell me how i can make my podcast better tell me what i'm doing wrong tell me what i'm doing right tell me what you'd like to hear more of or what you'd like to hear less of if you liked or disliked something I said or have any views, comments, criticisms. Honestly, they don't even have to be constructive. If you have anything at all to say, you can write to me at my personal email that's maitraya.ghorpade at gmail.com that's m-a-i-t-r-e-y-a dot g-h-o-r-p-a-d-e at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at my personal handle or on at waternot. I hope to hear from you soon. Thank you.